if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together surrender our lives. Say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. Welcome back to a new episode of the Radical Together Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you can listen to all the previous episodes at Radical.net or by subscribing on iTunes. Now, a few months ago, David preached at the Send North America Conference from Nehemiah Chapter 1. And today you're going to hear the second part of that two-part message entitled, Nehemiah and the Call to Mission. We get the grace, he gets the glory. And this changes everything about how we view our lives. When we realize that God has not saved us, God has not saved you, ultimately for your sake. He saved us, you, me, ultimately for his sake. Among the nations, which means, don't miss it, global mission cannot be reduced to a compartmentalized program in a church for a select few people who are called to that. No, global mission is the purpose for which we have breath on the planet. You live, Christian, you breathe. Why? For the glory of God among the nations. And he deserves more glory than he's getting right now. So connect it. So see the poor. And so we live so that God would be exalted as the defender of the weak and the helper of those in need. See those little girls enslaved and live so that God would be exalted as the hope to the hopeless. See the unreached and work so that God will be exalted as Savior of the world. So there's 6,000 people groups, 2 billion people who are giving glory to Muhammad. They're giving glory to the Buddha. They're giving glory to hundreds of millions of Hindu gods. And none of them deserve glory. Our God is the only God who deserves glory. And our God is saying in his word, I deserve greater glory. Said it all over his word. And this is why we're sent into the world. It's why Henry Martin, missionary in India, said, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is not glorified. It's hell to me if he's always dishonored. So let's look at need in North America. Let's look at need in the nations. And let's weep. Let's weep. Not, not just because people are in great need, but because our God deserves more glory. It's why Jesus taught us to pray like he did. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in all the earth. That's not a description of praise. That's not a saying, I praise you. That's saying, I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you, God, to hallow your name. Cause your name to be glorified in all the earth. I'm looking at northern Yemen where there's 8 million people and only about 20 Christians. And I'm praying, we're praying, we're pleading. God, you deserve more glory than just 20 people in northern Yemen. So please, God, connect it with what we're seeing in Nehemiah. So that just leads us to pray. So please, God, remember. And then a bold request in verse 8 to say to the omniscient God of the universe, Remember. He knows everything. He ordains everything. To say to God, I don't know if you forgot, 
remember. Just look at Northern Heaven and say, remember, God. Remember, you said in your words, 2 Peter 3, 9, you desire their salvation. Remember, you promised in your word, they're going to be gathered around your throne on that day. So remember, God, and do something. Cause your name to be known as holy there. Leads to the third thing God is saying to us in this arena right now. God is saying, seek my face. Seek my face. So what do we do in a world of great need? A God who deserves great glory. What do I do? What do I do with that? Where do I start? And God says, seek my face. Verse 4 in Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah went directly to his knees and he stayed there. He continued there, it says. For days, the Bible says. Verse 5 says, he prayed, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. The whole picture is day and night, day and night. And the text actually gives us a clue into how long these days of weeping and fasting and praying lasted. You look back up in verse 1. The text said that Nehemiah heard this in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. So that was equivalent to like November, December. That's when he started weeping and fasting and praying. And then you go ahead and jump ahead to the next chapter, chapter 2, when Nehemiah uh, went before the king, which we'll talk about in a second. It says he did so in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And that would be like March or April. So November to December to March and April. What's he doing? He's, he's just praying and fasting and seeking the face of God. That was his first impulse. And Nehemiah's not alone in this. Right before this, Ezra did the exact same thing. Before Ezra got, led God's people back to Jerusalem in the first place, he declared a fast to pray for the protection of God's people. Book after this, Esther, same thing. She's facing the impending, impending annihilation of the Jews. Severe personal risk in her own life. And you'll never guess what she did first. This is urgent times. And she calls all the Jews to fast for three days before she goes to the king. So here it is, back to back to back stories in the Bible of people who took bold steps and made bold moves for the glory of God, but they weren't about to do it apart from desperate prayer and fasting. Their first impulse was to fall on their face, to set aside food, and to plead for God's power. Is this our first impulse? Fasting like this is... It's just to be honest, it's foreign to us. We see a world of great need and we don't start fasting. We start formulating programs and plans. And, and after all, we don't have to fast for the church to grow in our day. We have marketing for that. We don't have to pray to draw people to Christ. We have publicity and creativity to take care of that. And brothers and sisters, we have created in our day a whole host of means and methods for doing ministry that require little, if any, help at all from the Holy Spirit of God. And God is saying to us, you have no idea how powerless you are. You want the secret to power with me? It's not your creativity or ingenuity. It's not your intellect or skill. It's you seeking my face with all your heart. It's putting aside your food and saying more than I want to eat, I want you. 
more than I need food. I need you, God. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. A dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've held your power, your glory. Your love is better than life. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. My soul will be satisfied in you as with the richest of foods. And more than I enjoy food, I enjoy you, God. More than I need a meal, I need your mercy. More than I want my hunger to cease, I want your kingdom to come. More than my stomach longs to be full, my soul just longs to see Christ. I'm putting aside food. I'm fasting. Are you fasting like this in your life? In your family? Does your church fast like this? Pray like this? Let's not forget that the greatest mission movement in the known world of the New Testament started when the church at Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying before God. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to follow their lead. To stop fooling ourselves. We can't plant churches in our own power. We can't make disciples in our neighborhoods. We can't make disciples among the nations by mustering up more of our own might. So let us throw aside our damning dependence on natural ability and human ingenuity. Let's plead for God to do in our lives, in our families, in our churches across this country, among the nations, what only God can do. I don't want to be a part of something that can be explained by my own power, my own ability. I want to be a part of something that can only be explained by the power of God. Only God could do that. Jonathan Edwards said, only God is able to do the work of God. And it is his will that when God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it will be preceded by the extraordinary prayers of his people. We cannot accomplish mission without fervently seeking his face. And he's saying to us, seek me. Psalm 27, verse 8. God, you have said, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Jeremiah 29, we know. 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's telling us to seek him. And Jesus told us, when you pray, go into your room. Just get in a room, close the door, pray to your Father's unseen. There's reward that's waiting for you there. And don't, don't heap up empty words. For your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. Is that not a confusing exhortation to pray. Okay, so he already knows what I need before I even say anything, so what's the point of saying something? And as soon as we ask that question, we're on the verge of an incredible breakthrough in prayer because we're realizing that the ultimate purpose of prayer is not to get something, but to be with someone. And he's saying, seek me. Get into a room alone with me. Just get on your knees before me and just be with me. Be with me because there's a great reward to be found there. Do it day after day after day. Do it night and day, night and day. Seek my face. And then, fourth thing, God is saying to us in this arena, see a world in great need. Believe that I deserve greater glory. Seek my face and trust my hand. Trust my hand. Just like the books of Ezra Esther, the sovereign hand of God is all over the book of Nehemiah. One of my pet peeves about this book is when preachers and people see it as a leadership manual. They talk about Nehemiah as the hero at the center of the story. But if we walk away talking about Nehemiah, how great he was based on this book, we miss the whole point. He's not the hero. God's the hero. This whole book is about the sovereign hand of God at work in his people for his glory. You look at Nehemiah's prayer. Verse 4 says he's fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He says, verse 5, O Lord God of heaven. Twice, 
God of heaven, a title that demonstrates God's universal, unquestioned power and authority and control over all history, including history right here. All this work in Babylon, Persia, the whole cool PowerPoint presentation are not so cool. It's all being directed by the sovereign hand of God. In fact, turn, turn back real quick with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. So just two books back to the left. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 is the last chapter right before you get into Ezra. And you get some of the historical background here. And notice, when you get to verse 22... And you get the proclamation of Cyrus, king of Persia, that sets the stage for so much of this. In verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the what? God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Same thing when you get into Ezra, first verse, and the year, first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Who's doing this? The Lord's doing this. We could, we could look at other New Testament or Old Testament texts that show God doing the same thing in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and life here in Cyrus. God's about to now, and Nehemiah used Artaxerxes. And keep in mind, none of these guys were believers. None of them were believers. This text is just showing us what Proverbs 21 tells us, that the king's heart is in the Lord's hands, which is really good news, isn't it? It was enlightening to listen to politicians today, but it isn't it good to know that our hope is not in them. Aren't you glad that President Obama is not sovereign overall? And neither are the leaders of England, France, Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, Israel, none of them are sovereign over all. Our God is sovereign over all of them. He holds them in the palm of his hand. And Nehemiah knows this. He knows this about the king he's about to talk to, and he knows this about himself. Nehemiah knows that anything good that's going to happen is because the sovereign hand of God is making it happen. It said it there in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse, verse 11, you end uh, of verse 10, they're your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong what? Your strong hand. Then you get to chapter 2, verse 8. And then we're talking about him going in the king, but in verse 8 it says, this letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, and he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. You get down to verse 12. It says, Then I rose in the night. I had a few men with me. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God had done this. You get down to verse 18. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for my good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. Are you, are you getting the point here? It's the hand of God that's working in Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah. He's the one who's orchestrating all of it. Every detail here. And Nehemiah knows that's why he where, is, is where he is. He's a cupbearer to the king. He's working in the Persian palace, which means God has sovereignly put him in a unique opportunity place to ask for permission to go help rebuild the walls. And this is where I just want us to realize and let it soak in that the same Lord, the same God of heaven who was orchestrating all these details of Nehemiah's life, is orchestrating all the details of your life. Do you realize this? God was setting Nehemiah up for a unique display of his glory. And this same God 
has set your life up for a unique display of his glory. That's the whole point of the conference. To help us all see that the sovereign hand of God has put each of us where we are for a purpose. We'll return to David's message in just a minute, but we want to take a moment and let you know about a few opportunities available to you this month. We at Radical would like to invite you to join us in participating in a free webcast on October 30th. The International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is a live webcast hosted by our ministry partner, Open Doors. During the webcast, guests from around the world will share how you can pray together with other believers for persecuted Christians. For more information or to sign up for the webcast, visit opendoorsusa.org slash IDOP. And registration is now open for the Secret Church simulcast with David Platt next April. Secret Church is an evening of intense Bible study and prayer for the persecuted church based on time David spent teaching in underground house churches in Asia. This year's topic will be a global gospel in a world of religions. During this Secret Church, David will explore the claims of Christ in the gospel and consider how these claims inform the way we understand other religions in the world today. He'll also dive into the ways believers can share the gospel with people from varied religious backgrounds. And we hope you'll join us for Secret Church on Friday, April 29th. To find out more about Secret Church and to take advantage of early simulcast registration pricing, visit secretchurch.org. Now here's David with the rest of today's message. God has placed you in your neighborhood right now for a purpose. God has placed you in your workplace right now for a purpose. God's put you in that particular community, in that particular city, that particular state, that particular part of the world. He's put you there, not accidentally, but purposefully. All of it purposefully. Why? For the glory of his name and the salvation of men, women, children around you. That's why you are where you are. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. You're a teacher. You're a manager. You're a coach. You're a stay-at-home mom. You're a student. You're retired. You are where you are, and none of those things are accidental. They're all purposeful. And just like Nehemiah, unbeknownst to you, that purpose may may one day extend far beyond where you live right now. Nehemiah knew that the potential was he was about to, his position was about to leverage him an opportunity to travel a long way for the glory of God. I praise God for close to 5,000 brothers and sisters representing this coalition of Southern Baptist churches serving overseas, living overseas for the spread of the gospel. But I was reading this last week the notes from a mission conference in 1900. And at that mission conference, they talked about the Moravians. And the report there was that the Moravians have for every 58 communicants in the home, in the home churches, a missionary in the foreign, field, in the foreign field. So I don't know if you caught that, but for every 58 church members, they had one person in a foreign field. You think about the churches that are represented in just the Southern Baptist Convention. So just starting there. 
40 plus thousand churches, 16 million members, which I know how pastors are with numbers. So let's just assume 10 million of those people are actually alive and uh, <laughs> members in churches. You do the math. If that Moravia, that, that ratio was happening among us, we're talking not 5,000 people overseas for this program. We'd be talking almost 200,000 missionaries. And you look at the Moravians and you see they weren't doing this because they had a nice, sophisticated, well-financed mission board. They were doing this because they were taking advantage of the sovereign opportunities that God had opened them up for them for the spread of the gospel around the world. They were looking for jobs in other parts of the world. Some of them were selling themselves into slavery. They'd see a slave ship going to this country. they say, well, that's a way to get to the country. So we're going to sell ourselves to get on the ship and we'll work as slaves for the spread of the gospel in that country. One out of 58 of them going. And if the Moravians had those kind of opportunities centuries ago when they're taking ships overseas, how much more today could it be that the Lord, the God of heaven, has designed the globalization of today's marketplace to provide opportunities for tens of thousands more men and women to take the gospel to cultures around the world? Could it be the opportunities there? And I'm on a plane and this guy introduces himself to me, recognizes me, and we start talking, and he says, I say, where are you traveling? His name's Hugh. He's from Demopolis, Alabama. Anybody from Demopolis, Alabama? I didn't think so. Demopolis is no metropolis, I can tell you that. Small town Alabama. And I say, Hugh, where are you traveling? And he says, I'm going to Mexico. I got a lumber business, and we're expanding into Mexico. I said, are you anywhere else in the world? He said, yeah, we're in China and Indonesia. We're trying to get into Dubai and the Middle East. And he starts talking about this. He's traveling with his 24-year-old assistant who speaks Mandarin and Spanish fluently. And he said, yeah, lumber business. This is awesome. We're going all around the world. I said, Hugh. Have you ever thought about how God's opening up these opportunities, not just for the spread of lumber, but for the spread of the gospel? The opportunities are there. And I think about another guy in our church. So he's in uh, the horse betting business. Uh, not B-E-T-T-I-N-G, but B-E-D-D-I-N-G. And that's a significant difference um, for a church member. So betting, betting, like it's on, yeah, the horses walk on the betting and sleep in the bedding. So just we're clear. Um, so, so he's in this business in North Alabama and apparently there's this unique tree in North Alabama that is uniquely able to soak up uh, horse's urine. So just go with me here. It's able to soak up horse's urine. And he, I'm, I'm sitting there one day, we're talking about this kind of stuff in the church and I see the light bulb go on. And as we're talking about opportunities in uh, places like the Middle East where he realizes that with nobility and, and, and there's all kinds of opportunities for expansion of horse betting business in the Middle East. And it clicks with him. You mean this job I've got can gain me access into places where people have never heard the gospel? My life can be used to get the gospel. People have never heard it. I don't have to leave my job to do mission. I can actually leverage my job to do mission. And it hits him. And I'm sitting there just praising God. I mean, God... The sovereign hand of God has ordained a tree in northern Alabama to soak up horses' urine for the display of his gospel in the Middle East. You can't write a script any better than that. 
There's opportunities to work. There's opportunities for students to study. You're thinking, high school students who are in here, you're thinking about where am I going to study? I read an article the other day that just listed all these different universities that will pay for you full scholarship to come study overseas, and some of them in the middle of unreached peoples. So you can get paid to go to college for free in English and other places in the world for the spread of the gospel. And then, not just, not just while you're studying, but then after you study, I read another article that said uh, 71% of graduating millennials expect to work in an overseas assignment at some point. And companies, were, uh, this article was talking about companies were tailoring job opportunities for that. And so what if, what if we raise up our kids in the church and students across this room start thinking, okay, not how can I go to college so I can get a good job, make a lot of money, and kind of coast this thing out until I get to heaven. What if, what if I can go to college and get a marketable degree that the nations will want me to come work there and that will open up opportunities for me to be a part and spread the gospel to the nations. So students, professionals, retirees, I mean, did you realize Uncle Sam will pay retirees not just to play golf in South Florida, but he'll pay retirees to live for the spread of the gospel in Europe. Do we realize in all these ways the nations are actually funding unknowingly the spread of the gospel to the nations? God's got the whole thing rigged. He's got the whole thing rigged. The question is, are we going to take advantage of the opportunities that our sovereign God has provided for us? If only we'll say, we trust your hand. I trust your hand. Which is not easy. I mean, what if God sends your family to the Middle East or this part of Africa or Asia? And it wasn't easy for Nehemiah. You get to chapter 2, and uh, he knew this was great risk. Cupbearer goes into the king, looks somber, looks sad in the king's presence. Cupbearer can be killed just like that. The risk was great. That's why he spent four months fasting and praying. But then listen to what happened. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Just feel the tension. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not... My face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and his gates have been destroyed by fire. He's going for it here. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? And this is the do or die moment. So I prayed, you'll never guess to who, to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, so he just looks at me, just see this flash prayer, God help me, God help me. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and will, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, so now I just ask for more. Let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river. They may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let her Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to take beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
you can trust his hand. God's saying, trust my, my hand. Close with this. Um, when I, uh, I was a junior in high school, I'd never had a date. And I really wanted a date. But I was afraid to talk to girls. And a girl came to church camp. And word got around that she thought I was cute. And that if I asked her on a date, she'd say yes. So... About a week later, I saw her kind of walk off into a room by herself, and I followed her in there, and I cornered her. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, will you go on a date with me? And she said, yeah. I said, okay, bye. And I just walked out. Like I, I had my line, I got what I needed, and I walked out. So the date was a week later. I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and uh, uh, so we decided we go to the laser show in Stone Mountain. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Stone Mountain is like a, a big mountain of stone, and uh, just this big rock. And uh, in the summer, there's a big field in front of it, and people will go out there, and they'll shine lasers on the side of it and play a lot of uh, redneck music. And uh, it's great for a state place, I thought. So um, you just kind of sit on the lawn, and you watch the laser show at night. And so, uh, so that was the plan. I went home that night, picked out my clothes for the next weekend. Um, pretty excited about my date that week. Eating patterns changed, sleeping patterns changed. Um, I'd, my dad came up to me and said, son, you got a problem? I said, I got a date. <laughs> and uh, I got to, to Friday, and I got my car to go pick her up. About She lived about 20 minutes away from me. Well, about 10 minutes into the drive, I realized I knew the general vicinity where she lived, but not the exact place where her house was, which was a problem. Uh, when you're going to pick a girl up on a date, um, you need to know where she lives. And so this was before cell phones, and I started thinking, what am I going to do? And so I just start praying. Like, I don't know what... I was expecting God to do, like, put a big yellow arrow in the sky, like, she's here, but uh, I didn't see anything, and so I pulled over, pay phone, called her up, I was like, oh, I forgot to get directions, and now I'm late, and I'm like, oh, I've totally blown my first date, and so anyway, I go pick her up, uh, we, we go out to the laser show, and we're sitting there, and, uh, and I'm just nervous, talking, just waiting for this show to s- start, and once it finally starts, it's dark enough, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, what do I do now, and I see your hand right down here, and I think, should I try to hold it? <laughs> I think that's what sometimes we do on dates, so I don't want to just reach over. So I come up with a plan, and uh, I decide I'm just going to let my hand just kind of drop by my side, and I'm going to slide it over a little bit, and a little bit, and a little bit, and then once it gets over there, our hands will kind of touch. And I'll be like, oh, let's hold hands. So pretty ingenious plan. And so, uh, so I, I did it. I, uh, I dropped my hand by my side, and I'm just going to look around. <laughs> I start sliding over a little, a little more, a little more. Uh, 20 minutes later, my hand's still not there. <laughs> I keep thinking, this is going to be the moment. This is going to be the moment. Oh, okay. So, finally, our, our hands touch. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> and we start holding hands. Well, 30 seconds later, the show's over. <laughs> and you know what we did? We just sat there looking up at the rock, <laughs> looking at a blank, dark rock, holding hands. That was the first time I... 
had the joy of holding my wife's hand. And so, oh, yeah. I remember from that moment that that relationship obviously growing in the days to come into this joy that I know in, in marriage. And I, I just tell that to you. I just want you to think about Right where you're sitting. So just don't let this just go to the person beside you in front of you. Just this arena, just you. Right where you're sitting. Right now, if I could just speak to you one-on-one, just hear this. Do you realize that the sovereign God of the universe has reached down his hand of mercy into your life? He's taken the initiative. He's pursued you. He loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you so much to send his son to die for you. He loves you. And he wants the best for you. He wants relationship with you where you trust him. Where you enjoy him. More than you enjoy food, you enjoy him. Where you experience reward with him every, every single day. And where your life joined with him counts for the greatest purpose in all the world. This is the invitation that lies before you. And so I say to you, Rise and say, here am I, send me. I'll take your hand, I'll trust your hand, I'll seek your face. And I want your glory in this world of great need. I really believe that's what God is saying to us tonight. And, and so, I, so I asked you, how will you respond to that invitation from the sovereign God of heaven. And so in the quietness of this room, not just an extraordinary special group of people, but to every person in this room who would say to the God of heaven, yes, I can. send me. I want to join you in making your gospel known right where I live and wherever you lead, wherever. If you would say that to God, then I just want to invite you in just a moment to stand. And after you've stood, so in your standing, somebody asked me in an interview over there, it was just like, so is this real or is this just another conference? It's like, oh, I pray it's real. I pray it's real. I pray that there's life trajectories that are changing. Recalibrating, refocusing. Like, yes, send me. I want to join with you. Send me. I want to join with you in mission. Right where I live, right now, this week, right where I live, and wherever you lead in the days to come. So, so if you would say to this God, I'll, I'll take that hand, I'll trust that hand, use, use me however you want, then I want to invite you to stand where. You are.
Can we pray? Oh, God of heaven. We say yes to you. We thank you for your hand of mercy extended toward us. And we join with Isaiah and saints throughout history who said, here, here I am, send me. So see us in this room. Be pleased in this room. Be glorified in this room. As we say, we surrender to you. We trust in you. We want to seek you. And God, I don't presume to know how all, I don't presume to know all the places you're going to send us to, or the people you're going to send us to, but God, I pray, I pray that this week people would come to know Christ because of this surrender right now. The friends and family members and coworkers would come to Christ this week. God, give us boldness to speak the gospel this week. And God, I pray that you would take some of the people in this room and you'd send them to the most remote parts of the world. Spread the gospel among people who've never heard it. You'd send some of them to work and, like we saw earlier, do sausage in Spain for your glory. Do this or that job. Study at this or that university. Retire in this way or that way. God, for the spread of your gospel in this or that city in North America or this or that city among the nations. God, we pray that you would, in our day, God, we want to be a part of a Moravian-type movement. And your church taking your gospel to the ends of the earth. So we pray, oh, no, and only you can do that. We, we're saying in this arena, we want to be a part of that. So, in this world of great need, spend us for your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. The Radical Together podcast and other resources, including those in other languages, are available because of generous giving from listeners like you. And we'd like to ask you to consider giving to our ministry so that Radical may continue in the mission of being devoted to Christ, serving the church, and reaching the nations. For information on how to give, visit Radical.net slash donate. And if you'd like to know more about the International Mission Board, visit imb.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.